uh, grandparents on Friday. Um, they had a little granddaughter born in, Leth or in, yeah, in Lethbridge. But Pete Adornable also became a great grandmother again this past week. So lots of new life in our church family, so that's really, really exciting. But I am here to read the Bible this morning. Uh, 1 Chronicles 13 is what we are, will be reading. You can find it on page 646 in your pew Bibles. Bringing back the ark. David conferred with each of his officers the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. We do the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all the Israelites from the Shihor River to e in Egypt to Lebo, Hamath, to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all the Israelites with him went to Bala of Judah, Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the Ark of God, the Lord, who, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the Ark that is called by the name. They moved the Ark of God from Abinadab's house on, the new cart, on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs, with harps and lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, Uzzah reached out a hand to steady the Ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Cora, you did so well, I thought you were going to do the sermon, but um, it is uh, my great privilege again to, to lead you in this. What is God saying to us in this passage? At this point, I, I really hate it when people try to be funny or something. And I, I, I don't 
have that background from, you know, upbringing. But I have to tell you this. Did you see my message? I worked really hard on this. Cindy with Cindy. I worked hard on this. The most dangerous mission to undertake. And I actually had a response this morning from a very kind lady who helped me who got there. And she referred to this very difficult theme, clearly suggesting kind of, what am I going to say with a message like this? And I want to be blatant. There is only one message in the gospel, and that is this message. My sermon will be a light introduction, context, and we are going to look then at two aspects of life, the workplace and worship. This is the background. There was a time when there was one concept, one claim that was very Christian. And that was overwhelmingly accepted in the westernized Christian world as the absolute statement. And that is, for God, nothing is impossible. And then we encountered many phases in the history of the church, but especially around about the 1600s, 17th century, up to the present day, and it was really, really, really blatant in the 20th century and so forth, where that concept was hijacked by the world and the so-called world of science. And the claim was now, because we know so much and we are so capable and empowered as human beings, nothing is impossible for us anymore. Because God as kind of a hypothesis, a theory, is not needed anymore to explain difficult things. Uh, some of you may know the great theologian, New Testament scholar of Germany, that is really spearheading this skepticism, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, where he said, we cannot live in a world anymore where this Christian archaic concepts when we have antibiotics and signs and all the other things. We can do it all and the church need to adopt this truth and then we adapt or we die. Now I'm telling you, if we adapt to that nonsense, we die any case. The church cannot adapt to that. If that is true, then the Bible is a lie. And I don't want to go in this in huge lengths, but it's really arrogant and sorry for the word again, the S word, stupid. But we sit here on a planet. We cannot pinpoint that planet in the context of our galaxy 
The next phase is we want to put the civilization on Mars. I want to see that first, but whatever. And we think when we've reached Mars, everything is possible. Man, how stupid can you get? We are nothing. We are worse than nothing, really. What does that have to do with the church? And I always want to leave you with the impression that I'm really educated. So I leave you with this Latin phrase that you have to memorize. I'm telling you, I love you, do that. It's an enormous, impactful concept that is running wild everywhere we go, even in Calvinistic circles. And that is coined by Protagoras. Very sorry, I hit it on you already. And that's a concept, homo mensura. And this is referred to this one thing, man the measure. We are sending a team out on a mission. And I'm telling you, it's a dangerous mission. Not because Mexico is a safe place. Airplanes are fine if you travel by bus, sweet. The danger of the mission of the church is God. The holiness of God. We had an examination. They asked one of the students, you know, the candidates there yesterday at classes, uh, do you think there is something like good people? And he actually answered brilliantly. But the point is this. Do you believe there are good people? Say, oh, yeah. I have a neighbor. He's a good mechanic. He always fixes my truck. He's a good person. What is your standard? If your standard is us, homo mensura, then we are a bunch of good people. But if God is your standard and my standard, then he's holy and perfect. None of us can even remotely be good. God sees the heart. He sees your soul. He sees who you are and who I am. And there is something when you encounter God that is called the really blatant, brutal deconstruction of the human being. We call that in easy terms, not always understanding what it is, and that is repentance. Why will I repent if I'm so good? Why, why will Christ be there if I'm not so bad? If I just need the law like the Jewish concept, and that is, you know, teach a few things about good and bad, and then you get not so bad, and after all, you know, why will Jesus come and die on the cross? God, man, the whole debate. If I'm so good, because I'm not. And now, of course, that statement, this sweeping statement, can I prove it? We're all sola scriptura people. That means Bible alone, God alone, God's word alone. Can I prove it? Let's go to the workplace. There's a text that we read together. We know it by heart and by some by memory. Peter going fishing. Two boats. First of all, the boat was used as a teaching session. What was Jesus teaching about? Only one thing. I, there's no mention of it, but there was one theme, and that is God. God is the center. God is the focus point. 
we have made that message the other way around. And that is, I am here, and I need a lot of help, and God needs to fit in my agenda and my world. And then I really will follow the Lord when He comes and helps me, and when He serves me, and then I will come to church, and I will worship Him because He's worthy. And who decide if God is worthy? I am, because God is helping me. You are having a prayer summit kind of thing, conference. Why do you pray? And I don't want to mix everything up there. But I'm just saying the focus is us and our need. And I think it's totally wrong. We are saved. We are created so that God can have fun and glory. That's why you're saved. So Peter was there, really tired. It's kind of a humoristic thing. Journeyman, fisherman, not ice fishing. And then Jesus was there and saying to them, throw the net on the other side. I mean, how ridiculous can you be? And it's very clear from the text, this is how Peter understood it. And he said, but because you say it, in respect for you, I'll, I'll do it. You're my rabbi. And then they did it. And the result was astonishing. Two boats filled, nearly from a blessing to a disaster. They nearly sunk the boats. And what's the response? Hallelujah. God is with me. If God is with me, I'm a fisherman. I mean, I will make money. Sounds like today. This is how we have church nowadays. But what Peter's response was, was from God himself. When he saw that miraculous catch, the issue was fish no more. It was how small I am before how great you are. And that deconstruction of humanity, that breaking down, that humiliation kind of, is reaching for one thing, and that is God. Fix me. Fix me wherever I am. And I said, I think it happened in the workplace. Fishermen during fishing time. What we would sometimes encounter when we are working. People loosely. Oh my God. Oh Jesus. How can we do that? How can you mention a holy name and abuse it that way? Because we do not grasp the holiness of God. People are really good people, and we work together. And I cheat a little bit on my time and on my this, and, you know, in the end, doesn't matter. God is holy, and you are a mission in a mission with and for God. Remember that. What about worship? I think a brutal text is this text that Cora read so beautiful for us. First Chronicles 13. What happened there? Background again, quickly. Usa was the grandson, probably, of Abinadav. The ark was there for 20 years in their house. Text is not saying it, but what happens when I have something like that in my grandparents' house? I may s sneak in and have a peek and maybe touch it 
we, we don't know the context. But then at one time, we need to rebuild the nation. It's clear. This is what David is doing. Reestablish the people, the nationhood of God. How do you do that? We need God on our side. There's lots of enemies, lots of challenges. We need God here. So how will he be here? He will be here in the ark. So all of us in it together, yeah, they had a meeting, and the Levites and all the people said, yes, let's have God with us, as if we need to decide if God is there or not. Then they put it on the ox cart. And what happened, you know, the oxen stumbled, and the ark started to tip over, and Usa stretched his hand out and touched the ark. What should he have done? Let it go. And God struck him on, on that spot. And he died before God, the text is clearly saying. David was really angry. I doubt if David was at that moment really angry just because God is so unfair. I think he was angry at the whole situation. He was deconstructed. He saw how inferior, how incomplete is my effort to reach God, to get close to God, to get God here. And it's frustration that was articulated in what he said further on. And this is, how can I, Lord, stand before you? How can I get you here? I need you here. But the moment I'm near you, it's like a moth and a candlelight. I burn up. Because your holiness, your greatness is too immense for my smallness. And chapter 15 explained to us the next approach to this whole thing. But what was the lesson for them? Was it the method? No. I think, and this is dangerous, God forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think if Usah stood back and let the ark fall over, God would have struck him down any case. Now why? Because God wants to teach, he was a Levite. God wants to teach the Levites, the leaders, that when you deal with me, I am holy. And you should tell the people, I am holy. And I'm unapproachable. I'm on that holy mountain. And even if a cow or whoever crossed that borderline, you killed him or her or it. Because I am holy. What is that for us? What's the lesson? It calls forth that God needs to reach us. Come down from us. We are not the homo mensura. We are not the standard. We are just experiencing, encountering God as he approaches us. And therefore, you can never get out there, go anywhere without the understanding. So beautifully illustrated to the children. We need to understand, know God. The whole mission trip of the church is knowing the holiness of God and where's the limits and borders and what is known and what is not known. And once you've encountered God in that way, you know I'm small, but I need God. Not so that he can fix my financial problems. I just need life. God needs to be my song. And then Jesus came. What was Jesus? We can never negotiate a mission trip 
any missions, our missions, without understanding who Jesus was. God, fully God, fully man, so that he can come down in my world and tell me the holy God is approachable, but in humbleness and acknowledgement of his great and holiness and my smallness and sinfulness, Lord, who will save me of this death existence, Paul is saying in Romans. And then the answer comes. I am saved. I am free. I can approach God. I can hug God. He hugs me first, though, because I am saved in Christ's blood. And that freedom brings into us a song, a song of life, a song of Christ and joy. We are Calvinists. I hope you're... What is my heartbeat? What is my motive in life? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who've paid it all. How can you get to grips with that truth? How can you encounter God in that level? Three things. Do you remember? Three things. First thing, there's a chronology, a order. First thing, I need to know my sin and misery. I need to know my smallness. How do you know your smallness if your standard is the next guy, the Joneses? I'm sometimes better than them, that's a fact. If my standard is God, then I know my smallness and I see the problem, the crisis of the world. We look at addiction. What is addiction? The crisis of sinfulness, whatever it is. The deep sins as we sang. What is that? Is that I'm satisfied with my humanity. That my standard is I just survive. No, you survive before God. This is God's world. This is my father's world and he wants me to be his disciple. And that cost me deconstruction. Breaking down. What's the solution? that I know I'm saved by Christ alone. Christ alone. Why is Paul, you know, was he not brainy? No, he was the most intelligent person in that era, if not all eras outside of Christ. Seriously, that's my opinion as a philosopher. Great minds, great thinking. What was Paul saying at this question? What is your life about? He said, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected. Why? Because in him, I have life now, forever. And I can go out there and I can farm. And I can carpentry and I can do whatever I do that. And I know God loves me. He holds me. And I can be a father, a mother, whatever you are. And a child. And I am there in God's grace because I have God near me. Coram Deo, right, face to God. Why? Because he looks at me through Christ. And he doesn't look at me at my smallness, but at my reconstruction in Christ. And therefore, here I stand, Lord. As Luther said so beautifully, I can do no other. You're my life. Here I am. May God bless you. Bless me. That we know God because we have scripture. Love the word of the Lord. Read it. Study it. Don't pick text. That's cheating. Read the whole thing. It's not easy. But it's rich. It's rich. And then it's never about the ark. 
They were carrying it, as chapter 16, 17, 15 said. We should have carried the ark. It is about who carries me. God, almighty universe God, that saves me. And I'm safe because he is there where I am. Amen. There's a song of response that we have now. Build your kingdom here. <laughs>